0: Amen. You may be seated and uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. As you grab your seat and turn with me to Acts chapter 14, we'll be reading verses 8 through 18. Uh, Once again, that's Acts 14 verses 8 through 18. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Mike Kazerowski and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at FAC. And if you're new or you have any questions Regarding First Alliance or our family, I'd be happy to connect with you after service up front. I'd love the opportunity to uh, connect you to the rest of the church the best that I can. Um, But for our time now, let's go ahead and turn to God's word and see what he would have to say to us. Once again, Acts 14, verses 8 through 18. Now at Lystra, there was a man uh, sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lake Ionia, the gods have come down to us in the likenesses of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, I recognize that I am only a man, like Paul and Barnabas. And we would ask, Father, uh, that where my words fall short, your Holy Spirit would bridge the gap. Uh, Lord, we know that my words are weak uh, and they have no power. And so would the Holy Spirit um, come to my aid? and be with us. Would this be a dialogue between us and the Spirit this morning, Father? And would your words that you have inspired so long ago now be illuminated in this moment by the power of your Spirit. In your precious Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're just joining us or recently joining us, we have been traveling through the book of Acts together uh, each week and lately, we've been tracking with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey that will wrap up in a couple of weeks. Um, last week, we saw an attempt made on Paul and Barnabas' life as they preached the gospel uh, the, in the city of Iconium. There, the people there stirred up trouble and actually tried to kill Paul and Barnabas and um this uh, resulted in them fleeing from Iconium, and we find ourselves now traveling with them to the city of Lystra, which is about 18 miles uh, south from Iconium. I believe that we've got an updated map that uh, you, you can take a look at for those of you who want to keep track of kind of where we've been so far and where we are um, now uh, on their first missionary journey. The, the first three verses that we read this morning really serve as a prelude to the interaction that Paul and Barnabas is going to have later on uh, in the passage. The verses 8 through 10 just set up the rest of the story. These first verses are very simple, really. Paul is preaching, and there is a man there who is listening in, in, in the company uh, who was crippled from birth. Uh, in the streets, and uh, th- this man who is crippled from birth, hears Paul preaching, and there's something that Paul said, we don't know what it is, but in something that Paul said, the man had the faith to be healed. Uh, now, this doesn't mean that he had enough faith, that his faith healed him. Uh, he just recognized that in Paul's message, there was some kind of healing power available to him. And Paul looked right at him and was able to discern that, and Paul ends up healing this man who was crippled from birth. And what's interesting about these first couple of verses is that we actually don't see a response or a reaction from this man who was crippled other than he just he sprang up and he started walking. That's all, that's all we get. We don't know if he was happy. We don't know uh, if he was dancing for joy. Uh, we don't know what his reaction was, other than he just got up and he started walking. We don't see a response. But we do see a response in the crowd, because the passage is actually mainly about the crowd and the events that surround the crowd. The crowd in and of itself in this passage is a character in the story. And this miraculous healing amazes the crowd. Well, why wouldn't it? Right? What a remarkable event to witness. If you are one of the the many in the crowd, what do you do with something like this? Because here's this crippled man who has been crippled from birth. We're in a small town and we know who this man is and we know that he's crippled and we know that he's never been able to walk. And then all of a sudden, this messenger, Paul, and his buddy Barnabas come strolling into town and they say something to this guy and he gets up and walks. We've known him to be crippled his entire life. And now something inexplicable has happened as he frolics down the road. What do you do with this? What do you do when you witness something that you saw with your own eyes, yet remains unexplainable? I think we would do what everybody would do in a moment like that. We try and explain it. You try to make rational sense of it. Because our minds struggle with uncertainty, right? uh, with, With things that happen inexplicably. It makes us feel comfortable that things can happen in this life without explanation. And so it's natural for us to try and explain the unexplainable, which is exactly what happens in verse 11. The people recognize that they have seen, uh, they've just witnessed something supernatural. And so for them, logically, this power must have come uh, from a supernatural source. Mere humans can't do that. And so there has to be another explanation. The power has to come from somewhere else. And so in their logic, they actually elevate Paul. This is what they say. We've seen something supernatural. And the supernatural can't have human origin. Therefore, therefore, Paul must not be human. No, instead, the gods have come down in the flesh to to look like humans to to be with us. Now, Now, that actually sounds strikingly similar to Christianity, doesn't it? God in the flesh has come to be with us. Jesus Christ, and so you sit there and you say, "They're onto something here. There has to be some kind of uh, supernatural source." Uh, however, we have to remember that this is a this is a fully Gentile city, uh, right? These are non-Jewish people. They have no ties to the one true God, and so of course as they tried to explain the unexplainable, you can't blame them for turning to false gods, the ones that they were familiar with. They knew nothing of Paul and Barnabas as God, the one true living God that we know today. But all their life, they have been exposed to and have been taught about the ancient Greek gods. And so they, they say that, that Barnabas, you must be Zeus, who's the God of thunder. He's known as the king of the gods. They most likely attributed Zeus to Barnabas because Barnabas was the older of the two. And they say that, Paul, you must be Hermes, who was the herald of the gods. Hermes was a messenger god, which makes sense because Paul is the one speaking in public here. The identification of Paul and Barnabas with Zeus and Hermes, just makes sense in this area and in this context. Because Zeus was the most widely worshipped god, if you will, small g, god in this region. In Lystra, there are several carvings and inscriptions and shrines devoted to the worship of Zeus and Hermes. Even in the text, we see this come out. In verse 13, we read that Zeus had his own temple at the entrance to the city. And so if you are taking a vacation to Lystra and you are driving into town, you come across that big sign that says, welcome to the city of Lystra. There is no welcome center though. The very first thing that you see is the temple to Zeus. You come through the city gates and you are greeted by this temple devoted to the worship of of Zeus. It's the first thing you see when coming into town. And it becomes very evident to everyone who visits Lystra that Zeus is their god. What we see here is a classic example of idol worship at its finest. Ancient idol worship. And so the the Lystran population believe that Zeus and Hermes have actually shown themselves in the flesh. And they respond accordingly. Right? They, in almost a frenzical manner, the crowds, uh, together with the priest of the temple, uh, come out and try and offer a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. They're like bringing out livestock and, and they're getting ready to kill this thing on the spot in order to worship their gods. Now imagine how easy it would be for Paul and Barnabas to take the praise that is so freely given to them. It would be easy for them to take advantage of the situation so that they could gain something in return. But no, this is not their intention. Instead, they try and set the record straight immediately, and they do so in dramatic fashion. You see, the people's reaction to Paul and Barnabas was dramatic as they begin to sacrifice right then and there. But Paul and Barnabas match their reaction with a dramatic response of their own. What do they do? They start ripping at their clothes. They start tearing their clothes off. Could you imagine if we were worshiping in this very room, Believing what we were doing was right and pure and holy and appropriate. And then only, and somebody just starts shouting out and ripping at their clothes, ripping their clothes off. That would get our attention. And it would stop us to do, to stop doing whatever we were doing. In the same way, this act of tearing clothes would have gotten the people's attention in Lystra. You see, this response is actually a Jewish response. We must remember that while Paul and Barnabas are committed to following Christ, they are still ethnically Jewish and are very accustomed to many Jewish practices. And and the ripping or tearing of clothes was a Jewish gesture. the, The ripping of clothes was a gesture symbolically indicating that blasphemy had occurred against the one true living God. When I initially read this, I actually felt like this situation was somewhat comical, right? There's this grand misunderstanding in the city, and I found it comical. But there's nothing comical or funny about this for Paul and Barnabas. No, this is serious to them. They take aggressive measures to ensure that the one true living God is the only one who properly receives the glory. They take serious action for a serious situation. And then they graciously attempt to bring the people to proper understanding. They meet them where they are and begin to explain the message of God. They don't take advantage of the people, but lovingly correct them. And what do Paul and Barnabas tell them? Hey, stop what you're doing because we're men just like you. There's no need to sacrifice the oxen you. But guess what? We do have a message for you, and it's a good message. It's good news. And this is what the message is. You should turn from these vain things. You must turn from these vain things and turn to the living God. That's the good news, is that there is a living God who should replace all of these vain things. The reference to vain things is directly correlated with their idol worship of Zeus and and Hermes. That is what Paul is referring to as a vain thing, is the sacrifice that they are about to perform. Uh, To call something vain, I want to focus on that word. To call something vain is to say that it's useless, that it's pointless, that it's worthless, that it has no value. Paul and Barnabas are saying that their worship of Zeus and Hermes is an empty endeavor that will only leave your very soul empty. This actually reminds me of what God said through the prophet of Jeremiah in in Jeremiah 10. God is describing the vanity of such idols. Take a look at uh, what he says through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with a chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. Like a a scarecrow in the cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Jeremiah goes on in the passage to describe these idols as worthless, as objects of mockery. He's saying these these objects of worship, these idols are laughable. We can mock them. This is the type of vanity that Paul is talking about here in this passage. Think about this. Such idols were cut from a tree in the middle of the woods and chiseled into an image. Jeremiah is saying, you are the ones that adorned it with silver and gold. You gave it its value. It was created by human hands. What kind of a deity is one that you're able to just create in woodshop class? And they fasten it with a hammer and nails so it won't, won't totter. Think about how ridiculous this is. These idols can't even stand upright on them by themselves. You need to adjust it so they sit upright on their own. These idols are no better than my old rugged kitchen table that, that totters back and forth, and that we need to actually, we need to literally put books underneath the legs so that we have a level t- table. That's what these idols are like. And don't bother asking it for direction because they can't speak. And not only can they not speak, they can't even move and walk on their own accord. They actually depend on you to carry them where they need to go. How ludicrous. How foolish that we would depend on such idols for guidance and life. How unreasonable that we would seek out such vain idols and vain things for fulfillment and satisfaction in the world. These are dead things that lead to a dead end and an empty life. And Paul and Barnabas urged the people to turn away from these vain things. Now, in our culture and context, when you consider the word idolatry, when we talk about idol worship, there's a very good chance that we imagine primitive people bowing down before man-made statues, as I've just described. Perhaps you picture shrines and you picture temples that were built specifically for the worship of idols and, and, and think, well, we certainly don't do that. Right, You read this passage and say, well, I don't worship Zeus and Hermes, so what gives? Why does this matter to me? You're right in that we don't worship Zeus and Hermes, but we do worship other things. We may not outwardly bow down to anything, but we inwardly bow down to many vain things in our hearts. You see, our idol worship has just taken a different appearance. It's still there. We may not have physical shrines in our culture and our context, but our hearts are set up as a shrine where we worship a whole slew of idols. What is an idol? According to Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, an idol is anything. Anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Keller goes on to write that an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts that, that if I have this one thing, if I have that, then my life has meaning. If I just have this one thing, then I will have value. Then I will have significance. Then I will have security. And so, no, we may not physically kneel before the image of Zeus. But many experience the bondage of kneeling before the idol of body image. Many in this very room experience the destruction of an obsessive concern with how they look. We may not visit the temple of Hermes. But before the pandemic, every Sunday, we packed temples with hundreds of thousands of people so that we may pay homage to the idol of sports. We worshiped and praised gods on the ball field and spurred them on so that they would defeat the gods of another city. We may not offer our children up as a sacrifice, but when it comes to the number on our bank account or the title next to our name, we, as Tim Keller writes, perform a different kind of child sacrifice. We neglect our families in order to climb the never-ending, never-satisfying corporate ladder. So don't you see that our culture is just dominated by idols? Our hearts are jam-packed with idols, and the struggle of this is that not all of these are inherently bad things. God is the maker of all. He created certain things for us to enjoy as a blessing. But the moment one of those things takes the throne and becomes the primary thing that replaces God on the throne of our hearts, it becomes an idol. And this is a problem. Because that throne belongs to God. And so what do we do? What is our responsibility? How do we respond to the problem that our hearts mass produce idols in our sin? There's three things I see in the text that we need to do that it's our responsibility. And they all begin with the letter R. First, we must recognize. I must recognize what idols I have that have a hold on my heart. And I must recognize their true nature. This is what Paul did. Right, right. He, he addresses the idols of Zeus and Hermes point blank. He identifies them. He calls them out by name and he calls them what they are. Nothing but vain things. In the same way, we must recognize the idols of our heart. We must identify them. Well, how do we go about doing this? If you were to go to a doctor with a physical heart issue, they would ask you diagnostic questions to help dial in the issue. In the same way, we can ask ourselves diagnostic questions to identify and recognize the idols of our heart, the spiritual sickness. And these come straight from Tim Keller and his book, Counterfeit Gods. Here are some questions you should consider when searching your heart for idols that lie incognito. What dominates your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What do you spend your money on? What do you spend your time on? How do you respond when you don't get something that you want in this life? What do you get angry about? What do you despair about or get sad about? What are your most uncontrollable emotions tied to? All of these questions and many more will help us identify the idols of our heart. But even more so, and I I really got the order of this wrong, before we even ask those questions, we should go to God in prayer. Psalm 139 has become somewhat of a regular prayer for me through the weeks at the very end of that psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I recognize that there may be idols hidden in the deep crevices of my heart that I can't even see. And so by your spirit, would you search me? Would you pull these idols out of the darkest parts of my heart so that I may recognize them? Would you lead me to a way everlasting? We must recognize the idols of our hearts. And once we recognize them and identify them, we have to recognize their true nature. Recognize that these idols have nothing for you. They, Just as Paul said, they are vain and empty things, and they are not only empty by their nature, but they are empty for where they take you to an endless void, that is always draining your life and will never provide the life-giving qualities that you crave. Such idols promise the world to us and only ever deliver ash in return. These idols call out to us and say, today is the day. Today is the day I'm finally going to fulfill you. Today is the day I'm finally going to satisfy you just as, you, as I promised. But as the sun sets on another day, you're left empty once more, only to take another hopeless crack at it tomorrow. Recognize these idols in our hearts, in your hearts, and then recognize their true nature, that they are vain, empty, hopeless, worthless, Once we recognize, we must remove, recognize, and then remove. Paul tells the people of Lystra that such idol worship of Zeus and Hermes are vain things and that they should turn from them. In the same way, we should turn from our idols. We must remove them from the primary spot in our heart, from the ultimate spot in our heart. And this is where things get a little complicated because According to Keller's definition, if anything can be an idol, if anything created can be an idol, we have to understand that there are some things in life that I simply just can't cut away in life. For example, your children or your spouse can be an idol. They can take that primary spot of your heart, but you should not neglect your children or your spouse. You can't just get away from them. You can't simply just cut them out of your life. Your job can be an idol, but at the end of the day, you are biblically mandated to provide for your family in some fashion. So you can't simply just quit and never work another day in your life. So we have to understand that our idols really fall, uh, can fall into three different categories, and their category will actually determine how we go about removing them. Now, don't I, I want to be very, I want to be perfectly clear that all idols are bad, all idols must be removed, but how we remove them is going to be dependent on which category they fall in. The, the first category. If our idols are directly tied to sinful activity, you can just smash those idols to pieces. You can just do away with those, get rid of them altogether, and have nothing to do with them. This is the only appropriate way to handle the idols of our heart that are tied directly to sinful activity. Idols that fit into this category are the such of uh, things like pornography, or or drug related. Just get rid of them. Have nothing to do with them. Scriptures tells us to put them away. That's the first category. The second category of idol, uh, these are things that were meant to be a blessing for us, that God created to be a blessing, but we have let them slip into the prominent place of our heart. But in this category, we could give these up without neglecting biblical mandates. But we don't necessarily have to rid ourselves completely of such things like sin in our life, uh, like in the first category. But it would be okay if we determined that we just need to uh, step aside from these for a time. This category would include things like sports or entertainment or social media. Now, I'm not saying that you should never watch another sporting event in your life, that you can never go to the movies uh, again. But if it's an idol then perhaps it'd be a good place to start just to take a break i'm just going to do without this for a while because it's become the most prominent in my heart and the degree to which these kind of idols have on your heart will determine how drastically you need to act in removing them some of these types of idols have a far greater grip on your heart than you may even realize and it can be very challenging to remove them from the primary spot. And finally, a third category of idol. It's these that are meant, once again, to be a blessing. That once again, we've let slip into the prominent place of our heart. But the difference here from the second category is that these are not simply just things that we can cut away. That we could, It's not things like, I'm just going to take a break from this for a while, and this will fix the problem. No, these, these are things like family and our jobs, even money, Or food. If food is an idol, which it can be, you simply can't just stop eating forever. If your job is an idol, you can't just quit and never work a job again in your life. To cut these out completely would actually neglect biblical mandate. And so these are a little bit more tricky to remove. Because you have to experience life exposed to them with them without turning them into an idol to remove these things from the prominent and ultimate place in your heart really comes down to your attitude towards them. It's all about attitude, but with these especially, it's, it's about your attitude. You, you can't just simply cut them out, so you have to change your mind about them. You have to go to God in prayer and say, God, I love my children, but would you help me to love you more? God, thank you so much for providing a job for me. But but Father, would you please help me not be obsessed with success? Lord, thank you for providing the food on the table, but would you help me not overindulge? Father, would you help me find more satisfaction in you than I do from a taco? It sounds ridiculous, but it's true. And we need to go to God and ask him for help to take things Remove them off of our hearts. Once again, while there may be different categories of idols, we must remember that all are intruding on the throne that belongs to God, which brings us to a third step, and that is to replace. We recognize, we remove, and we replace. To simply remove the idols of our hearts is not enough because our hearts are an idol factory. If we remove an idol and leave our hearts vacant it, in time in our sin nature, will only be replaced by another idol. This is why Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's not about, I was bad and now I'm good, or I just need to stop doing that. No, because you can't stop doing it unless you replace it with something that is capable of changing you. And you do not have the power to change. Only the Holy Spirit can give you such power. And so our idols need to be replaced or there's going to be another idol that comes up in its place. Paul calls out the idol worship from the people of Lystra, calls them to turn away from such vain things, but he doesn't end there. He doesn't say just stop doing the bad things. No, he says, stop that and turn, turn to the living God. The God who, according to Paul, has revealed himself even to the Gentiles, since the dawn of time itself. But Paul explains who this living God is that they should turn to. He's the one that created the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And furthermore, Paul explains how God, as the living God, didn't merely create all things, set it into motion, and then like a wind-up toy, just sat back and relaxed and watched it play out. No, God continues to be actively involved in his creation and created order. Paul explains that God gave rains for a harvest, which gave you food and it satisfied your hearts with gladness. Paul's saying all of this, all of this creation, all of these blessings in created order that we enjoy on a day-to-day basis, that we don't even realize, are a testimony that the living God exists. The sun came up this morning, and it shows us that the living God exists. His creation and the order of his creation is one way that he has revealed himself to us. We've been speaking a lot lately about God's revelation. And in theology, God's revelation takes on two different forms. He has chosen to reveal himself to us in two different ways. Uh, First, there's what we would call special revelation. By this, we mean that that God has revealed himself to us in specific special circumstances. He has chosen to reveal himself to us in a particular way at a particular time. Examples of this is, is the inspired word of God. It's the miraculous, it's the supernatural, and most prominently, it's the incarnate Jesus, God in the flesh. That is all special revelation. But there is a second way that God reveals himself to us that we call general revelation. By this, we mean that God has also revealed himself to us generally, to all people, at all times, in all places, through natural means. And this is the argument that Paul is making in Acts chapter 14. He's saying, hey, you guys as Gentiles who were not Jewish, uh, did not have a special relationship with God like the Israelites. You were not his chosen people. You didn't know him the way that they know him. But despite all of that, God has still been gracious to you and has still provided for you and has still revealed himself to you by the means of creation and created order. And so when Paul tells them to turn from these vain dead things and turn to the living God, it's appropriate to ask the question, well, how do we know he's living? And Paul's answer is, just look around. Just look around and see, look at creation all around you. Look at the order of creation and the minute details in creation. As sure as the sun sets in the evening and rises in the morning, God's fingerprints are all over creation. His majesty is painted across the sky. Last week, I read an article about a recent large-scale survey of outer space. Astronomers uh, took to the cosmos in an attempt to find evidence of life beyond our planet. And they examined over 10 million star systems and they found no trace of alien life anywhere. This could tempt us to look up at the stars and say, why? What's the point of all of this? Why are there billions upon billions of galaxies with billions upon billions of stars with no observable life. What is the purpose of us as the only living creatures stranded on a lonesome island of a planet in the vastness of the universe, hurtling through space at 67,000 miles an hour? Paul says, the purpose of all of creation is to declare the majesty of the living God to declare the majesty of his existence. Through general revelation, God is calling us to look around. He's shouting at us. I'm here. I'm here. See how I am here and see that I am all powerful and I am the living God and I am far superior than anything else you could stuff your heart with. Yet in our sinful idolatry, we replace the all-powerful living God with vain things of the world, and our eyes are blinded to who he is. While he is standing right in front of us in the midst of creation, we do not see him in our sin. We don't know him, and we don't seek him. And because we don't seek him, God, in his love and mercy, seeks us. Jesus Christ in the flesh, as God comes to us and it's by Christ's power that we are enabled to turn from the dead and empty things of the world and turn to the living God and experience life as it was created to be experienced with God on the throne and us bowing at his feet to his glory and nothing else would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself to us, the everyday reminders that you have placed on our path this very morning that speak to your glory and your majesty. I thank you, Father, that while we didn't seek you and while we were at war with you and while we were rebellious towards you, that you have gone to great lengths to reveal yourself to us in creation, in created order, and specifically in the man of Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that, Father. And I would ask that if there be any idols in my own heart, even this very week, that you would rip them from the throne and place yourself on there, Lord. This is a dangerous prayer, Father, but would you do what it takes to help us remove these idols so that you can take your proper place in glory. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.